welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast. My name is Selah Goodson-Bo, and I'm a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute. May is American Wetlands Month a time to celebrate one of the natural world's most productive and important ecosystems. Wetlands provide valuable ecosystem services that include habitat for countless species, highly effective carbon sequestering systems like carbon sinks, and a buffer to reduce the intensity of waves and storm surges. Since 1989, ELI has honored over 200 champions of wetlands protection through the National Wetlands Awards Program, which recognizes individuals who have demonstrated exceptional effort, innovation, and excellence in protecting these critical ecosystems. Past awardees share a tireless dedication to ensuring the long-term sustainability of the many ecological, economic, and societal benefits that wetlands provide. This year, five awardees were chosen in the following categories. Sonia Michalik for youth leadership, Xavier Cortada for promoting awareness, Wendy Ferguson for local stewardship, Lauren Driscoll for wetlands program development, and Russell J. Fernari for business leadership. Though ELI was not able to hold an in-person award ceremony to honor this year's awardees, we have instead recognized their many achievements with a virtual campaign throughout May. This campaign has featured social media posts, a webinar, and blogs, all to celebrate this year's winners. To view these materials, check out www.elinwa.org and search hashtag Wetlands Awards 2021 on social media. To close out the month, We've invited each of our five 2021 awardees to share their perspectives and insight on a variety of wetlands-related matters. To start, we'll have each winner briefly introduce themselves and their work. My name's Wenley Ferguson, and I work at Save the Bay uh, in Providence, Rhode Island, and we are a watershed-based organization. And I've been working at Save the Bay since 1990 and have been doing some form of habitat restoration since about 1996, mainly in salt marshes, but I also work on water quality restoration projects, which can include some freshwater wetland restoration. And uh, the spring, in spring of 2021, I'm actually working on a project to restore a freshwater wetland in a former golf course, which I'm very excited about. So I'm learning a lot from that effort since I'm moving inland to work in a a freshwater wetland, mainly a former red maple swamp. Hello, I'm Sonia Michalek from New Jersey. Um, I'm a student and researcher at Carnegie Mellon University studying computational genomics, water sustainability, and statistics. Um, For the past 11 years, I've been working to preserve wetlands through advocacy, research, and education. Um, My research involves developing methods to increase the accuracy, precision, and statistical power of waterway health data. Um, I have developed and taught seminars across the country and at professional conferences. I feel called to understand our ecosystems and environmental impacts and to make the world a healthier place for all people and creatures. Well, thank you. It's an honor for me to have received this award, uh, especially from such a beloved and prestigious uh, organization, uh, ELI. Uh, And I'm humbled. I'm humbled by it. My name is Xavier Cortada, and I am an artist, a socially engaged artist, an artist that uh, uses arts elasticity to uh, work across disciplines, in this case, obviously, uh, looking at uh, 
biology and um, the research scientists do on wetlands to engage the community in problem solving. And um, the work I do, and I think the, the work you're recognizing me for, is the work I've specifically done with mangrove wetlands uh, here in Miami. And uh, we can talk a little bit about those as, as uh, the interview proceeds. Hi, my name is Lauren Driscoll, and I'm the wetland section manager in the Shorelands and Environmental Assistance Program at the Washington State Department of Ecology. Ecology is the lead wetland agency for regulation and wetland technical assistance in the state. I oversee Ecology's wetland program. Here we have wetland specialists that are located in offices across the state. They are responsible for permitting and technical assistance. We also have a headquarters office, which is where I'm located, where we administer the state's wetland mitigation banking program, our wetland com mitigation compliance program, policy, guidance, science, training, and tool development. My name is uh, Russ Frenari. I'm manager of environmental policy at PSEG. And as part of my work, I chair an organization called the New Jersey Corporate Wetlands Restoration Partnership. Um, my position at PSEG focuses on engaging with uh, a cross-section of stakeholders, government, business, non-governmental stakeholders uh, on environmental policy issues that concern the company and its business operations. Um, one thing I would note, you know, as, as, a, as the largest utility in, in the state that's the most densely populated state in the country, um, you know, we recognize that to be successful, we had to be respectful of the environment. We have a, a wide range of operations that are in natural or, or cross natural areas and other areas of the state. And so we focused on that and have focused on that for quite some time, uh, going back, you know, several decades. As you can see, the Wordies are extraordinary champions of wetlands. Next, we'll hear each winner's unique stories about their introduction to wetlands and why these habitats have inspired them to dedicate years to their protection. Well, I guess I can thank my parents. They took us camping a lot when I was little and really got, taught us to love nature. As far as wetlands, I guess I never really thought of them as wetlands back then. They were just cool areas. I mean, what kid doesn't like to chase frogs? When I look back, I see that my parents took us to a range of wetlands from coastal swamps in the southeast to montane wetlands in the north, but they were just wild places back then. I didn't study wetland in college. All my wetland work I learned on the job. I just knew I wanted to do environmental work, so I went to work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and wetlands kind of found me there. I started my wetland work with the Food Security Act, Swamp Buster, and then after that, I moved to the State Department of Transportation where it gave me the opportunity to visit and report on a, the wide range of wetlands across the state. I love the diversity of wetlands here in Washington. So why are they important to me personally? Well, they're places of solitude, but also lots of activity. The song of the blackbird, the rustle of sedges as you walk through them, the scent of mud and earth, they're just very appealing. They're places of immense beauty and diversity. When I'm visiting a wetland, I like to just walk, sit, watch, and listen. They're rejuvenating places for me. I was working in a generating station uh, in the northern part of the state, actually within what are known as the 
Hackensack Meadowlands. Um, and uh, I was asked uh, by my you know, station manager to, if I would be interested in moving over to the environmental side of things. Um, the focus was to have people who really knew our facilities shift into the environmental area where you, you could learn the environmental side of things, um, but better relate to the, to the operators in the, in the facility. And so you know, I, I went to, you know, I went back to school to learn things about those types of things. And you know, a big part of it was the mapping of, of sensitive areas that could potentially be impacted by a discharge in the you know, Hudson Raritan estuary. Before that, I didn't know very much. You know, I knew that they existed. Um, most of the the way we referred to them at the time was, you know, swamps. Um, and uh, that, but but having to look at it from a different perspective changed the way I thought about things and gave me exposure to the science. Um, that was contained within those natural environments that I wasn't aware of before. As a bioassessment volunteer, from the same net, I plucked little wiggling worms, moving midges, dancing damselflies, and I learned to identify them under the microscope. It soon became one of my favorite things. Uh, when I was eight, I had the good fortune to spend a lot of times outdoors with an ethnobotanist. Uh, from her, I began to understand the connections between our society, plants, animals, and the ecosystems that we live in. Areas in my hometown that I had walked by countless times, suddenly I saw them as sources of human food, safe corridors for animals, and headwaters to public drinking water. There really is so much that we simply do not see. Seeing a decline in biodiversity in some of the sites that I was monitoring inspired me to dig deeper. Um, so since I was around 10, I began doing independent research, uh, speaking at public meetings, and advocating to protect wetlands. I also began to teach my findings and interests at local nature centers. The sad thing about that question is that I wasn't introduced to wetlands. I was introduced to the remnants of what was once beautiful, majestic wetlands. I live in the river of grass, except around me, all I see are houses and asphalt and electrical poles and lines. I live in a river of grass, except that the only grass I see is lawn. And Miami Beach and Key Biscayne, the islands where I used to go with my family as a child, are no longer barrier islands with mangrove forests. But instead, um, when I was introduced to Miami Beach, there were no mangroves on what was once a mangrove forest because we barricaded that island with seawalls, seawalls that would allow your boat to dock, but would never ever allow a mangrove propagule to set its roots because mangroves can't set their roots. <laughs> in six feet of water or 12 feet of water. They need that grade. And I, um, as a child, would walk with my dad over um, the beaches and the Bay Islands of Miami. And he would point out 
um, trees familiar to his fishing village in Cuba. And of course, the most iconic of the flora and fauna were these strange trees that stood in the middle of the water. My grandmother was a great artist and naturalist, um, grew up on Cape Cod, was born in Provincetown. Uh, she took me out to salt marshes and we would explore them in the fall when they're the cowlick grass, it's um, called Spartina patens. It creates this kind of cowlick look like a, cow, a hair cowlick and we would bird watch out there and I really started to learn about salt marshes from her and then my mom was an environmental educator and she, you know, we would go to vernal pools and uh, do macro invertebrate monitoring, look for signs of skunk cabbage in the spring. And so between those two people, very important people in my li life, I really uh, began to love and um, learn from them, love wetlands and, and learn from them. The awardee's accomplishments are wide-reaching and influential. To get a better sense of this, we'll hear Wendley Ferguson, Russell Fernari, and Xavier Cortada explain the variety of audiences they engage with, while also elaborating on some unique aspects of their work. I work with a variety of organizations. Um, some of the first work I did at Save the Bay was um, on the Wenasquatucket River, which is a river that flows right through Providence. And uh, that we worked with community members, we worked with local churches, we were looking at restoring this urban river, and there weren't really many wetlands along the river except the riverbank itself because there has been so much impact to this river. But trying to reconnect the community to this. Um, natural resource that flowed through their community. So there's one example. We also work with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Refuge staff. We work with um, the state of Rhode Island. They own a lot of land, land trusts, municipalities, private property owners um, that own these marshes that we want to restore. So it's a whole wide variety of um, both community members, and um, the the actual owners of the, the property, and, and in some cases like land trusts and municipalities, the stewards of that land. When I talk about shoreline adaptation, I'm referring mainly to coastal adaptation projects, but also um, that flood that I mentioned to you back in 2010. Um, I think a real powerful tool that can be adopted easily by anyone is grabbing your phone or camera after a storm or during a storm, but preferably for safety's sake after a storm, and going out, and I call it storm sleuthing, and you're looking for signs of where the waters um, flooded in the case of a precipitation event or in the case of a, a, a large storm tide, a coastal storm, and um, document these vulnerable areas. We go out during um, moon tides or king tides, when, and we call it sunny day flooding and document how um, expansive the flooding is. And we use those images 
to help educate the public and those um, municipal and state leaders of why we need to do these shoreline adaptation projects and why we need funding to help municipalities adapt to these changing conditions. We're using these photos um, currently in the 2021 legislative session in Rhode Island to try to support a climate resilience fund um, for both riverine and coastal resilience projects. First of all, you know, the, the model that we use for the New Jersey CWRP is, is a cooperative conservation model that was developed as part of a federal program um, that started in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, called the Coastal America Program. And that led to the Coastal America Foundation, which is the foundation we actually operate under. Uh, we, uh, the idea is that, you know, oftentimes under a variety of federal programs, there are funds that are become available for um, state and local governments to use to do uh, environmentally based projects, whether it's you know, water resources projects under the, the Corps of Engineers or ag projects under the uh, Department of Ag and the Natural Resource Conservation Service. Um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife programs and funding that come out of that then come become available through their programs or or NOAA programs. Um, so there's a variety of, of of opportunities on the federal side, but often in, and in most cases those particular things require a local match. Um, whether it comes from state government, comes from in-kind services, um, local governments or nonprofits, you know, there, there's 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 always there's always some percentage. Um, sometimes it's a third, sometimes it's a quarter, but it's important to to be able to maximize the use of those federal funds to have the the match monies available. And so you, we, we help provide part of that match in many of those occasions. I've had 800 volunteers paint the underpasses of highways in Miami with mangroves as a metaphoric reforestation of what once was. Trust me when I tell you, I love mangroves and i and i think initially believe it or not it was it was about the metaphoric way of looking at a mangrove as an immigrant my dad and my mom were immigrants and i although they came by plane as you know 21 year olds in 1962 i thought of them as little mangrove seedlings that would basically be floating on a wave and then eventually come closer to land and set their roots and as they set their roots they grew they grew into taller seedlings, and eventually, when a community came together, those seedlings bunched up and created a mangrove forest that captured sediment beneath their feet, and in no time, you were creating islands, building community, like the immigrant experience did. And the more uh, they cared and supported and reached out to one another, the way mangroves do as uh, through their walking feet, the stronger the community would be.
So I thought of mangroves as the perfect iconic way of telling the Miami immigrant story. Miami is a wonderful global city because of the work that um, all of us have done and especially the different immigrant populations that have come and cared for mangroves. But as much as I care about mangroves and planting mangroves and reforesting mangroves, I care more about the people who do that. I'd rather a thousand people plant one seedling each than having one person plant a thousand seedlings, even if it's more efficient to do it that way. I go through incredible pains to make sure that the person planting that seedling has been in a mangrove forest. That person has helped not just create a mangrove breed, a grid on a, on a retail wall, but be the eco-emissary that goes into a retail store, asks to speak to a manager, and persuades the manager. A total volunteer who had never done anything with mangroves before is now the eco-emissary empowered to ask the manager of a Starbucks, hey, can I please put a mangrove grid on your window? Your Starbucks is where we used to have mangroves a long time ago, and we'd like for your clients to understand that. Again, to be responsive to audiences, I then partnered with museums and then partnered with schools and then partnered with universities to the point and then libraries. Just uh, in 2019, every single library of Miami-Dade County, all 45 of them, had mangrove installations. Why? Yet another audience, literally every corner of my county had you look at mangroves and learn about mangroves at your public library. So to me, the audiences change depending on the approach that I am taking, but it's always about inviting you to do something, to pique your curiosity, and that's what my art is about. The ongoing problem of environmental racism has caused many low-income communities and communities of color to experience disproportionate impacts during and in the aftermath of natural disasters. However, Wetlands offer crucial ecosystem services like flood protection and reduced shoreline erosion that can help redress the environmental and public health harms faced by these communities. With this in mind, we'll hear from Lauren Driscoll, Sonia Michaluk, and Xavier Cortada on the importance of engaging these communities in wetland protection efforts, along with a variety of other environmental justice implications of their work. Many of our indigenous uh, tribes used and cultivated wetlands for food sources and for traditional uses such as basket weaving. Where wetland restoration can also contribute and re restore culturally significant resources, it's a gain for the tribal community and the environment. For example, the Yakima Nation has done extensive restoration of wetlands that contain wapato, a traditional food source. So it's really uh, important that we make sure we're protecting wetlands for the cultural significance of them with our uh, local tribes. Wetland restoration can also help attenuate floodwaters and the reduction of flooding. Many tribal communities and disadvantaged communities are located in low-lying lands adjacent to rivers, in other words, in flood-prone areas. When flooding occurs, these communities are displaced and significantly impacted. As we lose the storage capacity in upstream wetlands because of development or filling, we hasten the runoff of rain and increase the flooding severity, impacting these communities, which are often low income and are the least able to afford the damages. Uh, I think 
The last one I would say is uh, what I would call green space and grayscapes. I think maintaining green space in urban and urbanizing areas is important for the health of the residents living in those communities. In some area, that little wetland surrounded by development may be the only natural area nearby. Green spaces are places that children can recreate, people can walk and take in nature and develop an emotional attachment to nature. Green spaces such as wetlands and riparian corridors can also help to offset the heat island effect in these developed areas with lots of impervious surface and buildings. They provide shade and places to relax and breathe. I believe that clean water and access to green spaces are a fundamental right for everyone. Access to clean water and green open and wild spaces should not be a luxury. In our society, we have very strong incentives for people to extract and develop natural resources. While this can be beneficial to our economy, it often needs a counterbalance to avoid what has become known as the tragedy of the commons, where individual self-interest unfortunately leads to less than optimal management of common natural resources. Uh, in some cases, the cost of restoring natural resources is magnitude greater than the benefit from destroying them. Many of the wetlands that I work with are headwaters to municipal drinking water sources. So by keeping these wetlands clean, we are keeping our drinking water clean, in addition to lowering the filtration costs for municipalities. Um, I am currently working to preserve wetlands and wooded areas as a system of parks that offer access to people regardless of transportation and socioeconomic situation. I am also developing methods of bioassessment to make it easier for all communities to be involved in managing their wetlands resources. One benefit of wetlands is that they trap rainwater and they serve to mitigate flooding. So it is essential to remember who is downstream and how their lives can be impacted by wetlands development. Um, not everyone has the same resources or the ability to recover after a flood. Wetlands and ecosystems should be nurtured as an integral part of our communities so that the benefits of clean water and clean air are available to everyone. Everyone, no matter their background, has a fundamental right of access to clean water and green spaces for their physical and their emotional health. So when I look at the, at the environmental justice implications of wetlands, one, it is a crime. It is a crime to think about taking that away from people who will actually suffer. Their health will suffer. Their economic viability will be diminished if the ecosystem services of our beloved wetlands are destroyed. And they're normally destroyed for one simple reason, greed and profits. So said another way, how criminal, how criminal to give wealth to some and ensure destruction for the future and for those who are not wealthy in the present. That's bottom line, the consequence of that. And what I try to do in my work isn't plant mangrove trees, because the truth is you can contract with anyone to do that. There are grants that do that. My job is to have the individual get their fingernails dirty, let them experience mangroves, let them become curious, pique the curiosity enough so that they become empowered as warriors to protect their wetlands. And that is what the reclamation project did. It wasn't about reclaiming wetlands, it was about reclaiming people and their role in society as caretakers of their environment. For the love of nature and 
all of the animals we co-evolved with, but also to take care of themselves and their progeny. And that is what my work has been about. We'd love to thank the awardees for providing such inspiring and informative responses as wetlands play an increasingly critical role in environmental justice work and climate change mitigation and adaptation efforts, we're confident that these awardees will continue to be leaders in this field. We could not do this on our own. The National Wetlands Awards Program is administered by the Environmental Law Institute and supported by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and Natural Resources Conservation Service. A committee of wetland experts representing federal and state agencies, academia, conservation groups, and private sector organizations selects the award winners every year. Thank you for listening and congratulations again to our 2021 National Wetlands Awardees. Again, for more information, check out our website at www.elinwa.org and search hashtag Wetlands Awards 2021 on social media. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.